My name is Tim Robertson. I'm one of the pastors here. And when I was assigned this text, just the two verses that Luke read for us several weeks ago, I thought, wow, we're starting a new series in the book of First Peter, and I could probably get through that in a few minutes, and then maybe I'm supposed to do an overview on the whole book or whatever. I'm not quite sure. But by the time we had our preaching meeting this Thursday, and Pastor Travis at Wilsonville, and, and I met with Pastor Scott, who's at Gladstone this morning, preaching on the same text. By the time we got together, we realized, oh my gosh, there's, there's 40 minutes is not long enough <laughs> to cover what's in these first two verses, which we'll be looking at here in just a minute. So if your Bible's handy, I'd encourage you to have that open to 1 Peter chapter 1. It was several years ago, I was walking down a very narrow alleyway in Bangkok, Thailand. I was with our youngest daughter. She was teaching school over there, and I had gone to visit her. And we were walking down this alleyway because we wanted to go to a Buddhist temple nearby. And I just wanted to get a view of that. As we were walking, however, there were some gentlemen that were sitting on a front porch of this alleyway, or maybe it's a back porch. We couldn't see them, but we could hear them. And all that I understood is I heard the word farong. Well, I can't repeat to you exactly what farong means, because I'm not allowed to, but Loosely translated, it's foreigner. And I I felt really uh, uncomfortable because I realized that they were talking most likely about my daughter and me as we were walking down this pathway. Well, she stopped and she said, let me handle this. And I'm going, handle what? I just heard frog. And she says a few things in Thai. She was quite fluent at that time in Thai. And they immediately stopped talking, whatever it was, they were talking about us, all the adjectives they were using describing this furong walking down. Well, I was very uncomfortable. I felt out of my element. I felt like an exile. And I was reminded of that as preparing this message. That's exactly what Peter's doing here. He is uh, addressing people who are living as exiles, but who were chosen by God. In fact, if we had a marquee in front of our church, I'm actually grateful that we don't, but if we did and we put sermon titles up there, My sermon title would most likely be Chosen by God, Living as Exiles. That's exactly what Peter is attempting to do here. He's writing to a group of people who are chosen by God, but who are living as exiles. Now, that's not a comfortable place to be. At least it's not for me. I'm a bit of a control freak, if you've gotten to know me some, and... I like to be in control. I like to feel like I'm at home. I like to feel like I'm in my element. Anybody else relate to that? Yeah, thank you. All right. Appreciate your honesty. (laughs) The book of 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter that we're going to be going through for the next several months is going to address that attitude, that reality that we are chosen by God, but we are living as exiles. We're living in a culture where it's the culture's out of control and We're not in control of that culture. I think sometimes we still have that view that churches in America are in control of things, but in reality we're not. And so this letter of 1 Peter is going to be a great, great study for the next several months because it's going to address some things that we might take for granted that aren't reality now. We're living in exiles, folks. We're living in a culture that is more and more hostile to what we stand for. We're living out of sync uh, with the culture around us. And so the letter of First Peter is going to be very, very helpful. Let's read the first uh, two verses here. Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect. Exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. These two verses are going to serve as foundational for the rest of our sermon series on First Peter. Uh, no doubt we will continue, and the many voices that will be standing here uh, delivering the word will, will continue to come back to these first two verses. So we're not going to do an overview of the book, but we're going to do a very deep dive into these simple two verses because it's going to serve as foundational for the rest of what we do. I love the way uh, Peter starts this letter. Now, he's using a common greeting that would have been normal in his day and time in the Greek culture of the first century. But I love the fact that he identifies himself as Peter. Uh, His real name was Simon, right? He was nicknamed by whom? Jesus. He called him Cephas in Aramaic or Petros in Greek, which literally means rock. And so Jesus saw something in Simon that Simon didn't see in himself when when they originally met. And he calls him out and calls him by this nickname. And I love the fact that here, years later, Peter is starting a letter, a personal letter, about what it means to live as a chosen person of God in a land of exile. But he's doing it from the standpoint of this nickname, Peter the Rock. He also identifies himself, you'll notice, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's actually a technical term that he's using. Basically, what he's saying is, I am someone who has authority to bear testimony, authentic testimony to Jesus. I'm an eyewitness of Jesus, and I can bear testimony to him, and that's exactly what Peter, the apostle, is going to do. Let's go on. He says also in that first verse, that he's writing to a group of people and he identifies them as exiles of the dispersion. Your Bible, if it's a different version, it might say diaspora. That is the actual Greek term that's been transliterated into English, but what it means is scattered or dispersed, thus dispersion. And it was a technical term that was used to describe Jews who had been scattered in exile throughout the countries outside the boundaries of Palestine. Peter is using it to describe a group of Christians, some of whom were Jews who'd come to faith in their Messiah Jesus, some of whom were Gentiles who had crossed over the line from paganism and had embraced Jesus of Nazareth. But in both cases, they were uh, Jesus believers. They were Christians um, who were, in, in effect, scattered throughout. Now, you'll, you'll notice if your eyes glance further down the page, in verse 6, he's going to identify them as people who are experiencing various trials. Next week, when Pastor David uh, unpacks the next several verses, he'll go into detail on that. Verse 7 uh, lets us know that their faith is being sorely tested. He's writing to people who have been displaced out of their normal environment where they had been born and raised. These are Christians that are displaced in what we now call present-day Turkey, then called Asia Minor. 
And you'll notice if, if you can uh, glance at that map up there, he, he identifies them as from Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and then Bithynia. These are displaced people for a variety of reasons. Could have been one of the emperors of Rome that, that sent them out. Could be a variety of reasons. But they're there nevertheless in a land that's foreign to them, that's uncomfortable to them. And to make matters worse, they're being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. They've been ostracized in many cases. They're being slandered in other cases. Malicious gossip has uh, fractured and crushed family relationships. They've, uh, their reputation has been threatened in the community. And even uh, to a degree, some of them, uh, their ability to survive economically has been jeopardized. Can any of you relate to that? I think so. I think there are a number of people here this morning who, as I was giving those descriptors, could say, wow, that's me. That's what I'm feeling. Gossip is crushing family relationships. I've been ostracized. I've been slandered. My reputation's been run through the, through the mud. Why? Because I've chosen to follow Jesus. Because I've chosen to publicly identify with Jesus as my Savior, as my Lord. Well, guess what? The book of First Peter, the letter of First Peter, is going to be a great study. For all of us, but for those especially who are feeling the pain of rejection that comes from living in exile as a chosen one of God. There's, there, are, there are always many different uh, kind of main ideas. We call it the big idea in preaching circles. There are always uh, different ones, but I'm going to pick on this one right here, and we'll come back to this throughout this morning's message. This, I think, is a major theme of these first two verses. We are chosen by God, and as a result, that defines our relationship with Him. Chosen by God defines our relationship with Him. And it also defines the world in which we live. And that world in which we live helps to define who we are in Christ. So let's look at this in a little bit of detail. These, these two relationships, they not only define who we are and how we are living and how we are to live, but they also are going to set the stage to help us understand the rest of the book, to help us understand as we go through this book of First Peter. We'll, we'll be coming back to this over and over and over again. So let's start with this first relationship, this our relationship with God. Peter says, to those who are elect. And if you were following along as I was reading that, just out of the maybe on your on-screen digital Bible or maybe your paper Bible, you may have seen that it just kind of reads to those who are elect exiles. But I purposely stopped, I purposely paused, to those who are elect. Take a breath. Exiles of the dispersion. Why? Because Peter is not using elect simply as a, uh, an adjective for exiles. No, he's basing the way that we live as exiles is going to be based on who we are in terms of our election. So let's unpack that. This, these two verses, by the way, you've already seen this, are just loaded with theological words, terms that have been misunderstood for not decades, but for centuries. We'll see if we can shed a little bit light on that this morning. So to those who are elect. Now, Peter 
is seeking here to encourage these uh, these folks that are living in exile and who are being persecuted for their faith. He's seeking to encourage them by, first of all, reestablishing their true identity. The most important thing that can be said about us is what God says about us. That's something I learned to say when our kids were coming up through their teenage years. And it's so fun to watch them. Our son has served as a youth pastor. It's so fun to watch them do that same thing to, to help, especially teenagers, junior high age, high school age, to make that point in terms of identity. The most important thing that can be said about us is what God says about us. Not what the culture says, not what our peers say, but, but what God says. So that's what Peter's trying to do here. Our identity is based first and foremost on our relationship with God. But... We'll see in the passage today, it's also uh, defined somewhat by our relationship with the world, our identity is. And that will make sense uh, as Peter kind of walks us through here. Now this term, elect, it literally means picked out, specially chosen. He's speaking of his readers as elect, and he's doing that in order to make the point that you have been uh, specially picked out by God the Father. So it's, it's not a theological term as much as it is a term of our identity. To be elect simply means to be specially picked out or selected by God. Multiple Old Testament references will give us a background to this, and, and I'm going to be um, helping us today to see that Peter is writing out of a context of the Old Testament. But let me just share one of them. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. I did not make a slide for this, so you can jot it down. By the way, and as you're jotting it down, some of you, uh, if you're visiting today, if you're new here, if, if new life is a new experience for you, you might notice that... There are many people that are jotting things down, that are writing things down, as if they're writing a term paper or something, right? The reason they're doing that is because at New Life, we're committed to life groups. We're committed to living life together, and we do that throughout the week. We meet throughout the week in smaller groups, in homes, and we, we further dive into the, the text that was preached on on Sunday. So here, at New Life at least, one of our uh, signature items is that you don't just hear a message for 35 or 40 minutes on a Sunday morning and then forget about it. We want to encourage you to dive deeply into that throughout the week. And so that's why people might be taking notes. For those of you that aren't taking notes, hopefully I just sufficiently shamed you to be taking notes. So. Deuteronomy 7. Make a note of that. 6 through 8. Listen to this. This is Moses, and he's talking to the people of Israel. They're about to go into the promised land, and he says, You're a holy people that belongs to the Lord your God. And then he says this. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth... And that's great, right? And so the Jews, they kind of, the, the Hebrew people, they kind of, you know, put their chest out and felt really good about themselves until Moses says the next verse. But it was not because you were more in number than any other people. The Lord set his love on you and chose you because the Lord loves you. In other words, it's God who is taking the initiative to elect people. It is totally in God's hands to do that. Jesus actually reflects this in John chapter 15, when, verse 16, when Jesus says, you did not choose me. He's talking to his disciples. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now, with that as as just a a quick kind of simple backdrop, we're going to dive a little deeper into some other words that are misunderstood. And what Peter's going to do in the the next verse, in verse 2, is he's going to define... How this, gets, how this gets played out, how it gets worked out. He's going to define the roles of all three persons of the Godhead and how they are at work there. Now, we use the word Trinity, but you won't find that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, the use of the word Trinity came into play hundreds of years after Peter writes this. And so, But, but what Peter's doing here is he's clearly referencing all three persons of the Godhead. All three persons of the Godhead play a role, a very significant role in terms of our conversion, in terms of coming into relationship with God. In fact, the three phrases that appear in verse 2 that we're about to look at, they, they will indicate the, uh, the origin, the means, and the goal of election, of our being elected. This confirms to Peter's initial audience, his first century audience, as well as us today, that we are truly God's people. Because all three persons of the Trinity are involved here. We are truly His people, and we're in a relationship with Him, even though we live in a hostile culture that would seek to destroy, that would seek to get us off, our, get us off the rails, so to speak. So in the next, uh, in, in verse 2, Peter, Peter says, uh, Peter says this, that we are, we are, uh, elected or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then he's about to jump into this kind of very, uh, brief but very profound description of all three persons of the Trinity involved. As I was preparing this, I realized there's a resource that I want to point you to. Those of you that are parents or even grandparents, especially, uh, just Tuesday, this book was published. It's called The Promises of God, and it's a storybook Bible based on the story of God's unstoppable love, based on the promises that God has made throughout Scripture. I'm a teacher at heart, right? So I'm always wanting to point people in the direction of resources. In fact, I've asked our librarian, Katie, uh, to make a copy of this available in our library. I was told between services that there was a woman in the service that actually, based on what I'm about to read to you, she, she went online, she was on her phone, she went online, went on Amazon and ordered it, right? I guess we're going to get a special dispensation for that. You, you can commerce in the church, I don't know. But she actually ordered it. Uh, and let me just read for you a couple things, though, because I think this is a great, great resource for young children. I know this copy is going to go with me this week. Deb and I are heading to Colorado Springs to visit three grandsons. So I'm going to actually leave this copy on the front pew if you want to come up and look at it later, but just leave it there, okay, because it's got to go to Colorado. But in the very first chapter of this book, the author says this, Did you know that God existed before there was any light anywhere? God has always existed. And sometimes grown-ups forget to tell kiddos some of the most important things about God. Like how he was, he has always been around. Always. Or how he is only one God, but he has three persons that are all completely that one God. So, here's a children's book describing in great detail the doctrine of the Trinity. I absolutely love it. It's a great resource. 
the, the author, she goes on to, to mention several things, one of which, though, I want to read to you. She says, the third thing you need to know about God is that he has three different persons to him. There is God the Father, God the Son, whose name is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. They are different from each other, and we'll get to hear stories about each of them, but they are each the one God. This doesn't make sense if you think about God like, like we think about, think about most people. Why? Because one person can only ever be one person. But God isn't like people. Reminds me of that, that statement, uh, God is God and I'm not. It's exactly what the point that she's making. God isn't like people. He can be and do whatever He chooses. So, the one God can have three different persons that are each by themselves totally God, but the three persons are also all the same one God. That's kind of confusing, isn't it? And then she goes on in great detail to describe that. So, again, I want to commend that to you as a, as a resource for your families and extended families. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here's a term. Here's another theologically loaded term. Uh, let's see if we can if we can make this a little bit simpler. Foreknowledge, that term that, you, that Peter uses here, let's, let's start first with what it's not. Foreknowledge does not suggest that because God knew ahead of time that we would believe or that we would respond, so therefore He chose us. That's not what foreknowledge means. In fact, in the overall biblical context particularly of the Old Testament, which is what Peter would have had access to. He may have had access to a couple of letters from Paul, but primarily Peter has access to the Old Testament. And that would be his, his Hebrew Bible. And so he's using language that would make sense to people who only had access to the Old Testament. In the overall biblical context, he's using here covenant language, covenant love language. To foreknow means this, to set one's love on a person or persons in a personal way. And in First Peter, the Apostle Peter is interpreting foreknowledge in terms of God's steadfast love. That's the, that's the interpretation in the ESV for hesed love, the covenant love that God had with His people. Steadfast love. So that the foreknown are those upon whom God has bestowed His covenantal favor, His affection, His steadfast love. Foreknowledge is not a cognitive, mental, uh, Greek-influenced theological term, as much as it is a covenant love language term. And that's how Peter is using it here. God took the initiative, and He chose them, He chose us, before they could do anything to deserve it. In other words, the origin of our salvation is God and His choice. To be elect is to be chosen by Him. That's the origin. Now, there's a very important verse in later in chapter 1. It's verse 20. If you do have your Bible open, just take a quick look at that. Peter is writing now about Jesus... Verse 19 makes that clear. And then verse 20, he says, He, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. God the Father intentionally planned the period of time when Jesus the Son would come into the world. Right? That's a, that's a logical conclusion to draw. Because Jesus was sent by God. Christ's coming did not depend on any human choice. Christ's coming did not depend on Mary's choice, on anybody else's choice. Christ's coming into history was according to the foreknowledge of God. It's God's choice. Therefore, when Peter writes to believers living in exile, using the same terminology, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. He's emphasizing God's sovereignty, and he's emphasizing God's initiative in salvation. Let me put it to you this way, very simply. Believers are elect because God the Father has set His covenantal affection upon us. Period. (laughs) Dramatic pause. Travis, Pastor Travis and I were kind of joking about this earlier this week. He said, I'm going to say that essentially the same thing. And he goes, I know there will be people in my audience who theologically don't agree with me, but they're going to go, wow, I really like that. Well, I I want to go beyond just, wow, I really like that, to this is what the Bible teaches. This is what Peter makes crystal clear. Let's go on. He says in this same verse that we're not only according to the foreknowledge of God, but we're also in, or you could say by, it's causal, by the sanctification of the Spirit. Not only does God the Father foreknow whom the elect will be, but the Holy Spirit is the means of our sanctification. Now, what on earth does that word mean? That's a big term, right? And sometimes you'll hear a, uh, an adjective in front of that, progressive, progressive sanctification. Literally, the word sanctification, it's similar to the Old Testament word for holy, and it literally means to be set apart, to be set aside for a specific, unique, intentional purpose. We might use the word consecration, we might use the word purification, but really what it means is to be set apart for special purposes. Let me illustrate. Some of you are chefs in here, and I'm guessing that you have certain cutlery that you like to use, maybe a special knife that you'll use to trim the fat off off the bone of a piece of meat or or whatever. You wouldn't take that same uh, special knife and go outside and start hacking down some blackberry bushes, right? Or start whittling a stick with that. Why? Because it's going to dull the blade. It's not going to be used for a special, unique purpose. That's essentially what's happening here. Is the, the, uh, the elect, the role the Spirit plays is that the Spirit comes and sets us apart. So God's, when, when, when the good news about God's love, when, the, when what we call the gospel, is being proclaimed, which it is right now, okay, here and in Gladstone and in Wilsonville, as the good news of the gospel is being proclaimed, what the Holy Spirit, the role the Holy Spirit plays is He is setting apart, He is sanctifying the hearers of the Word, bringing them into an understanding and into the realm of the Holy. That's what's happening. And it's happening to people who don't know God yet, and it's happening to those of us who do. I'm trusting that right now the Holy Spirit is doing that in your minds and in your hearts, because that's the promise. That's what Peter says. That's, that's what the role that the Holy Spirit plays. So God's work of foreknowing 
God the Father's work of foreknowing and the Spirit's work of sanctifying, then begin to usher the hearers of this truth into this new relationship, or we might say this new covenant. And so believers enter into a new covenant with God that is Spirit-generated and Spirit-empowered, and it leads to obedience. We're going to see that in the next, the next line. Some of you um, may have already raced ahead to this, and uh, I just want to read a passage. So I know for on, on good authority that there are a number in this room that Ezekiel 36 is just like a life verse. It's like a, the, these verses are just like it, it's just it changed changed your lives immeasurably. The prophet Ezekiel here is, is writing about this new thing that the Holy Spirit's going to do. Let me read a portion to you. I will sprinkle clean water on you, the prophet says, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Absolutely. And I will put my spirit within you. This Ezekiel 36, that's something that only God's Holy Spirit can do, is set us apart because He resides within us and will effect that work and will flesh out, so to speak, the reality of being foreknown by God to be His elect. Well, we obviously don't want to leave out the, um, uh, another person of the Trinity, namely Jesus Christ. And you can see this clearly here, right? God the Father the Holy Spirit, and now for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Uh, The combination of those two phrases has tripped up a lot of people over the years. Let me just again shed a little bit of light on that. Peter is writing out of the context of the Old Testament. He has an understanding of of things in the Old Testament that maybe we have forgotten today. And I believe uh, the best passage to go to to help us understand this is uh, Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. Just make a note of that. You can look it up later. But let me read a few words here. Once again, this is Moses writing. And he has, um, he's been on Mount Sinai. He comes down the mountain. He begins to share with God's chosen people at that time, Israel. He begins to share uh, some of what God wants them to do, how to live. And the people respond with one voice, saying, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. End of story? Unfortunately not. Because we know that they don't. Because they can't. Because they can't live up to that. They want to. They want to be obedient, but they can't really live up to that. Moses goes further, and he arises early the next morning, and he builds an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai. And he enlists the help of some young men, and they sacrifice some oxen. Moses takes half of the blood that's been drained, he puts it into basins, and he begins sprinkling it. He begins throwing it against the altar. And then he turns around, he looks at the people, he takes the book of the covenant, book of the law, and he reads it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Right? Because they really want to. And then... Moses takes the rest of that blood from those sacrificed oxen and he throws it on the people. He sprinkles it on the people and he says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Well, the covenant that um, he has made there uh, with Israel is sealed by this ritual of sprinkling blood. This is what Peter has in mind when he says here, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. 
Christians are dedicated, consecrated, set apart to God because of this sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. And as a result of that, we're then bound to Him and we express our union with Him through what? Through obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll do what I told you to do. You'll do what I command you. Do you see the connection here? And so, again, Peter addressing exiles who are being persecuted for their faith, he's trying to reestablish their identity. He's trying to encourage them with, this is what God says about you. You're elect by the foreknowledge of God the Father, and you're being set apart by the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's all effective because of the blood of Jesus. When I realized that we were going to launch this sermon series on the first Sunday of the month, I was ecstatic because that, because we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to remember this sacrifice that has made has been made for us. Folks, we are chosen by the Father, we're purchased by the blood of the Son, and then we're set apart by the Spirit. All three, working together, produce a true experience of, of salvation. I'd like to see if I can personalize this with an illustration. While studying and preparing for today's message, I came across a an illustration, and I want to insert myself in the illustration, and I think it'll, it'll make the point. As far as God the Father is concerned, Tim was saved. I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's when Tim was saved, before the foundation of the world. As far as God the Son is concerned, I was saved when Jesus died for me on the cross and was raised again. That's when I was saved. But as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, I was saved one night in the summer of 1960. When I knelt by the side of my twin bed, my older brother by my side, guiding me through this process, and I opened up my heart And I welcome Jesus in. All three persons of the Godhead were involved in that, though. From before the foundation of the world to the cross to that specific date in my personal history. And if we try to separate that, if we try to separate these things out, uh, then we're going to do a a, a disservice. In fact, we're either going to deny divine sovereignty or we're going to forget about human responsibility. And we're going to border on heresy at that point. So it's, it's all combined there. Now this, I don't mean to sound simplistic, but the, the, God's word is very simple and very clear how this works together. Well, let's not just stop there though. This, this leads to something. This leads also to our relationship with the world. We're not just over here set apart just for, for our own good. No, we're set apart for purposes, our relationship with the world. We're set apart to, so that we can effectively live as exiles in a foreign culture. So let's go back to, again, the big idea. Chosen by God defines our relationship both with Him, which is what we've just been seeing, but it also will define um, our relationship with the world in which we live. The world where we ourselves are living as exiles or foreigners. So let's look back at the, 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 the middle of verse 1. Peter identifies them as exiles of the dispersion. To be an exile literally meant to be 
from a foreign country residing in a land that's not that you're not native to, residing in a land amongst people that are native to that land. Um, they have a different culture. They have a different language. It's the experience that I was feeling on that alleyway in Bangkok where I couldn't speak the language. I wasn't totally understanding the culture. I was uh, temporarily there living as an exile. It also refers to someone not holding citizenship in the place where they reside. That immediately reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, right? And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't just a physical reality. It was for these people, these exiles. They were living physically in Asia Minor, a, a land that was not the land of their birth. But it can also mean attitudes. It can also mean perspectives on life. It can also mean how we view our history and maybe even view our future in light of where we live. Sometimes I think Christians, particularly in America, have the tendency to want to say, well, hey, we're in charge here, right? In God we trust. It's on our currency. And the the world, the culture has passed right on by that. We're in a post-Christian culture. And so we, we feel out of sorts, out of sync. We don't know how to relate. What, what does that mean? And so Peter's message here is not just written to a, a bunch of first century Christians. It's written to us as well. We can benefit greatly from this. Jesus himself said in John chapter 17, in his, his uh, high priestly prayer, you know, we, we pray the Lord's prayer, but this really is the Lord's prayer in John 17. He's praying to his father and he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, Father, but that you keep them from the evil one. In other words, God is, Jesus is not saying, I want you out of this land of exile. No, he, he's giving us the wherewithal to live in exile. He goes on to say, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So living as exiles does not mean we withdraw from our cultural surroundings. But it does mean that we see things in light of who we are. We see things in light of our election, in light of our choosing, in light of eternity. We don't see things in light of the culture. We see things in light of of who we are in Christ. And so the result here, what's fascinating to me, is that we're not only elect to be loved by God, to be sanctified by the Spirit, uh, to be covered with the blood of Jesus. But we're also, guess what? We're also set apart or consecrated by the Spirit to be exiles. Folks, this is not a mistake. We're living in exile. And our lives in exile, in this country at least, are not going to get any easier. And we could go to other countries where right now brothers and sisters in Christ are being persecuted for their faith and are suffering terribly right now. They're living in exile. That's not a mistake. The Holy Spirit appears has has set us apart for the purpose of actually living out the faith, the life of faith within the context of exile. Absolutely love that. Well, Peter concludes uh, his greeting, his first two verses. And instead of just saying, um, so pay attention to the rest of the letter, dear so-and-so. Instead of doing something innocuous like that, he, instead he says, may grace 
and peace be multiplied to you. He wants it to abound in their lives. This closing phrase at the end of verse 2, if you look at it, it actually summarizes the whole of Christian doctrine. Grace, that free, unmerited love and favor that God has towards His chosen people, His elect people. And peace. Well, what is peace? Peace comes is what comes as a result of grace. Peace, is, in fact, is used throughout the New Testament to describe the contents of our salvation. So, God's peace results from God's grace, and it signifies this, this whole sense of well-being belonging to those that are in right relationship with God. Even while we're living in a time of persecuted exile. It dawned on me this week that that's exactly what New Life Church is committed to. Our mission statement, to refresh your memory, to engage people disconnected from God so they delight in Him through Jesus. That's what we're about. That's, that is, we are a church on mission, and that is our mission. Just early this morning, I realized uh, there's one other verse that I need to get in here, so we're going to do it now. I don't have a slide for this, so you can can just jot down um, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. The Apostle Paul says something similar. This is Paul's take on what Peter has been saying. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? I'm so glad Paul and Peter were on the same page most of the time. They got into it a couple of times, but they, for most of the time they're on the same page. You'll notice this slide up here. You'll notice it's on the, on the wall of the foyer, Living Hope. This is the title for this ongoing sermon series that we're going to be in First Peter for, for many months. It, it actually emerges out of the very next verse. Next week when Pastor David is standing here, he's going to go into this in great detail. But let me just read it for you right now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why we're here this morning, because our hope is living. We have a living hope based on God choosing us in advance, setting us apart by the work of His Holy Spirit, and it's all uh, in effect because of the wonderful blood of Jesus that has been poured out on our behalf. And that's what we're going to remember here in just a few minutes. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for the clear truth of your word. So grateful, at least, that it's clear to me. I pray that it it will be clear to everyone who's heard it this morning. Lord, we want to just relish the reality that you, God, Almighty God, and our Father, chose to set your affection on us. And make us elect. Make us your choice. Thank you that you use the work of your Holy Spirit to effect that in our lives. To flesh that out, so to speak. And Lord Jesus, we are so, so grateful. 
as we've already sung this morning, and we'll sing again, we're so, so grateful that you chose to come and live among us, just like us, yet without sin, and then die for us, and then resurrected to new life, so that we can uh, join in that new life with you. We're so grateful for that. Continue, Father, to just bless our time together as we remember this great sacrifice that you paid, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, on the first Sunday of the month, as I've already referenced, um, we do celebrate uh, communion. And I love to make that emphasis because too often in our churches, we come to the the tables where the elements are and we look like we're in a funeral home or something. I'd encourage you to come with a bounce in your step and be excited, be joyful. We are remembering this great sacrifice that has been made. And this is the Lord's table. This is... Um, a, a remembrance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's not exclusively for members of New Life Church, but it's for those who profess allegiance to Jesus, who trust in His grace for salvation. So if you're a follower of Jesus, He's your Savior, He's your Lord, then you are welcome at these tables. And there's some in the back, there's even some in the balcony as well. You're welcome to participate with us. But if you're not, if you're sitting here today, and it's like, I have no clue what that guy was just talking about, (laughs) then I would invite you to stay seated. While the rest of us come down the center aisle and pick up the elements and and go back to our seats, I would invite you to stay seated and think about what you've heard and maybe even pray about that as well. Uh, During this next song, I'd invite you to to pick up, come to the table, pick up the elements at at one of our stations, and then return to your seat. Um, Pick up both the bread and the cup. Return to your seat because we're going to, take this together. I'll come back up and and lead us that as well. Let me just pray one more time before we do this. Lord, this is a privilege, but this is also a responsibility. We're, We're privileged to be the recipients of your love and grace, but it's our responsibility to remember. You've told us to do this in remembrance of you. So that's what we're about to do, Lord. Would you just bless this time, enrich our our hearts, enrich our minds even as we partake together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.